Welcome to Bark's Podcasts. Most Fridays in our PPG member group, we invite guests in to talk to us about particular topics. And when those topics are just absolutely fascinating and we feel the need to share them, we put them onto our Bark's Podcast. So today we're talking to Dr. Carolina Westland about punishment. What a fascinating and intriguing conversation. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us. It's, I, I always love chatting to you. I always feel privileged yeah. to talk to you. And, and just so everyone knows, and normally before we do these, I do a few minutes about PPG and sort of updates and things like that. And oh, somebody just mentioned on our feed that they were also hearing the echo, but it's now gone. Yeah, so excellent. Thank you for that. Thank you for Facebook user. That's fabulous. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Normally what I do on these interviews is I spend a few minutes, first of all, and just sort of gives people some updates on um, PPG news. And I don't have a lot of updates to give because um, we spoke last Friday about the fact that next week we're going to be putting out an official statement with save the dates for our brand new virtual summit. And I'm saying this for your benefit that nobody knows very much about it. So do not reveal any of the conversation we had prior to going live. But what I am delighted to announce is that you are gonna be speaking for us at that at said virtual summit. Yeah. So very excited about that. Thank you for that, thank you. So I, I like to keep these quite casual because I think people really enjoy getting to know you guys as real people, not just as sort of academics and experts. So I know you have a PhD in ethology yeah and you also you, you currently lecture at a university don't you i do i have for the last uh 20 years or so but um um typically they just sort of call me whenever they have a course and they want a section of either about applied ethology right uh, which is when you sort of take the ethological principles and you apply them to either uh rehabilitation work or right captive animal welfare mm. or when they want to, me to talk about training and and learning yeah and and it's the captive animal welfare that you are most passionate about isn't it it is it's sort of what i it's a passion that's kept growing over the years and especially since i <clears throat> so one of my big interests mm -hmm. well my background is in ethology yeah so here's the right. ethology bit and then i started hearing about and learning about animal training and that was like a huge I still remember that it was it, it was one of those pivotal moments in life you know i was i was actually um at a conference and somebody was doing a presentation and showing videos of trained animals who and it was i think it was monkeys in a zoo mm -hmm. and they were trained to just come forward and present their hands for inspection right and for me working as an ethologist uh, with welfare issues it was like oh oh my god you can actually look at their hands without having to sedate them or disturb yeah. them or anything yeah. so it was, that was just one of those defining moments and then a couple of years later i stumbled on um, affective neuroscience which is like a third piece of the puzzle right. so, so i i guess that's sort of where i've ended up and always with this animal welfare angle yeah. you know it's, it's interesting but i was on the phone with one of our board members this morning deborah millican who's in australia yeah, yeah. And we were talking specifically about the professional canine trainer accreditation through the Pet Professional Accreditation Board, which is our sister, our sister company who does um, credentialing. And we were talking about the fact that we need to get a committee together to revise some of the requirements for the skill testing, because at this time there are 10 skills. And then there's a conditioned emotional response and then there's coaching videos and i feel that right now where we are at in our industry there need to be husbandry skills in there because so much of what we're all doing now is that very thing it's the husbandry yeah. and and in many ways these are the skills that pet owners probably are going to use more nail trims medications chin rests Take, take and, and Chirag Patel actually refers to it. I hope I'm right here, but he says that husbandry is his dog agility. Yeah, I, I've heard that quote from him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I and I just love that because for how how important is that for pet owners? Um, so as dog trainers, we need to be really on top of that and be able to coach our clients to be able to do all that fun stuff. So when I was reading your website and it spoke about 
the sort of welfare of captive animals. I just thought, yeah, that's absolutely right. Because we put these animals in captivity. We should then be able to do all these things without inflicting them with any sort of pain, force or fear. So yeah, yeah. it's absolutely fabulous. So um, you have numerous courses. And as I was mentioning, we, often we have better conversations or equally as good conversations before we go live. So I'm going to mention this for the benefit of everybody. I was talking to some of our steering committee members and I have signed up for one of your courses, but as I reprimanded myself, have not yet started it. Um, three of our steering committee members are all doing some, one or two or numerous of your courses or have done your courses and are now redoing them because apparently every year you update them. I was, I was told, yeah, so good for you. And they all just speak so highly about these courses. So, <laughs> Tell me about these courses. How, how do you have the ability, because this is the same comment that they've all said, that you have this amazing ability of putting this information out, easily understood, without dumbing it down and making sure that it's interesting. Um, well, I'm really happy to hear one. that. Yeah, <laughs> I think, <laughs> uh, well, my, my background is as a scientist and I, I was never a very good scientist. I'm, right. not, I'm sort of not dedicated or passionate enough about data, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, data collection or statistics. Yeah. Um, and I pretty quickly figured out that, that what I'm good at is teaching. Yeah. I'm not a very good animal trainer. And I, I'm try, I try to be very open with that too. That yeah. I, I, yeah. you know, That's not my skill either. Yeah. Um, but I have, since I have worked with animal welfare for many years, I have attended, I don't know, 60, 70, 80, I don't, I, I haven't counted, international yeah. conferences on right. welfare, learning, training, uh, stress management, you know, all, all the different puzzle piece yeah. ethology. Yeah. And what I tend to do, because I, I, uh, I easily lose my concentration in mm -hmm. situations like that. So I take lots of notes right. to stay awake yeah. uh, or, you know, to, to, and to remember anything. Yeah. like six months later. Yeah. So um, a couple of years ago, I, I realized that I was sort of sitting on a gold mine of really useful notes mm -hmm. from very diverse conferences with some of the, you know, some of the best trainers out mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And, uh, and so I figured that, that uh, I would peg my hat on the online teaching. Yeah. <laughs> um, aspect of, of, of training right and so um, and I and I guess it's it's that background that I'm not a practical trainer because I think that many of my students are they're really my students are often a lot better trainers than I am mm -hmm. uh, but their learning history is from the practical perspective they learned by learning by doing you know right by right. making mistakes and by right. by observing others and my learning has been from I think a so more of an, an umbrella perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I don't know if that explains it, but it's it's sort of a, I, I felt the need to share because I realized I have also with this sort of multidisciplinary perspective. Right. And I and that's that what I, I love really, about what you teach. That's exactly yeah. I think that's why you come across so well. Because there is the effective neuroscience, the ethology, and then there's obviously the applied behavior analysis. Because I, yeah. because, I don't, because I think Susan Friedman says it says it well that you can't just uh, you can't just go to it from an ABA perspective because we have to take into consideration physiology, the ethology, the the emotional and you do focus a lot on the emotional component, don't you? Making I do. Sure, yeah. That the animal is always really okay with what we're doing, which is obviously very near and dear to our hearts at PPG because that's obviously the way that we sort of look at things as well. Yeah, so that's really, really, really important. The name of your business is? Illis Animal okay. Behaviour Consulting. What does the Illis stand for? <laughs> Interesting that you should ask that. Yeah. Now, I was, um, I wanted it, for some reason, I wanted it to be a Latin name. Okay. Uh, back in, like, this was, like, 2010. And so I was, I was sort of just scrolling Latin words and that jumped out of me and it means them or they right Perfect. and so it's like a, a very far-fetched reference yeah. to yeah. animals I guess right. I don't know it's um 
in Swedish, illis is uh, journalist jargon for illustration. So mm -hmm. I sometimes get really weird emails from people thinking yeah. that my business is about illustrations yeah photos and illustrations yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so the abc after it doesn't I, I guess if you were an illustrator the abc wouldn't really mean anything would it but yeah, yeah. but it, it is animal behavior consulting yeah yeah excellent okay so one of the reasons well, when you when i asked you to come on here you, you said to me what do you want to talk about and i said and i think we, we came up with the, the topic of punishment didn't we <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so punishment oh my goodness and yeah Huh, where do you start? <laughs> it's so it, it it's from my perspective, and I and we don't do ourselves any favors, do we? Because I think we sort of go out into the marketplace and say you shouldn't use punishment, um, thinking that punishment has this connotation of nasty and scary, when actually negative punishment doesn't have to be. It just means to remove access to something that the animal wants to access. However, there is a school of thought that negative punishment, if it's deprivation, can be really damaging too. So as, a, as an academic, how would you describe how we can use punishment appropriately, kindly, humanely, versus corporal punishment, positive punishment? Oh, Or should we go back to the Illis question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I, I think we should. I, I, I really like Susan Friedman's hierarchical thinking. I know there's been discussion now about, you know, should the re negative reinforcement really be that yeah. far up the ladder, etc. Yeah. But very often we can get behavior or behavior change by doing other things. Mm -hmm. than punishment. And right. then, of course, I think that it really, <clears throat> that if we do need to use it, and here's, I, from, from what I gather from the research, is that in order to be effective, mm -hmm. effective as in truly stopping the behavior, not just momentarily, yeah. it needs to be severe. Mm -hmm. Because, because let me just continue this train of thought, because what people do and find is that you can stop behavior with very, or you can pause behavior with mm -hmm. very slight punishment. Right. So you can and essentially just distract the animal from whatever it's doing, and he'll go, huh? Mm -hmm. And you get this pause which is, of course, reinforcing to the punisher. Right. Because if the animal is doing something that you don't want, this is an aversive stimulus to you. Mm -hmm. You do the punishment behavior, and the animal stops for a moment. And that is enough to reinforce the punishment behavior mm -hmm. from the, the, yeah. the behavior of punishing yeah. someone. But if you keep <laughs> looking at the animal, you very often see that they'll go back to doing whatever Mm -hmm. unwanted behavior mm -hmm. they were doing because it's reinforced somehow mm -hmm. of course animals don't do things out of the blue they do right. things because it's reinforcing yeah. and and so i think this um so i'm sort of leaning towards that don't use punish use interrupters mm -hmm. you know you can just go blah, 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 blah. Well, <laughs> and, 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 distract and, yeah. the animal for whatever he's doing right. and then Right. Do something, you know, give a cue, yeah. uh, rearrange the environment, uh, move out of that yeah. situation, do whatever it, you yeah. need to do in order to uh, sort of reduce the likelihood that the animal will then go back to doing that very same behavior. And as a, um, and as a positive reinforcement based dog trainer, we can create positive interrupters that, yeah. that interrupt in a happy way so that you oh, can sure. direct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. And I think, I think as well, you know, I mean, we, use, we do use a lot of negative punishment because if a dog picks up a shoe, the shoe is removed. Yeah. When puppies are nibbling, we remove hands. But what we don't do is use negative punishment by removing hands and then positively punish the puppy for nibbling in the first place. Yeah. So You um, remove the shoe and you give something else that's added. Right. And I think this is also, when we look at punishment from, from the purely academic perspective, hmm. 
and the way that the research has been done is that is to look at punishment uh what that does to the behavior where there's the animal isn't offered a, a second way out often mm -hmm. with some right. studies they are but yeah. but in 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 the practical life what you might do is interrupt an ongoing behavior mm -hmm. and then you immediately add on another strategy to that which yeah. is to encourage the behavior that you want yeah i think i think the other thing we don't take into consideration and aside from the emotional issues that are for me are first always first and, and foremost is and i read this in um coercion and it's fallout brilliant yeah. one of the best books you can read and it talked about the fact that you've got it, yeah i've got it right here too yeah <laughs> and it's all dog-eared like mine absolutely <laughs> Um, yep. is that what people don't realize is that when you do use positive punishment, unless, well, first of all, the a lot of the research on punishment is done in very whitewashed laboratories yep. where they can control every environmental antecedent, which we cannot do in real life. In real life, and here's a good example for me, is when a dog jumps for greeting and people physically punish the jump. People think that's going to work because they think if you punish the behavior, it's going to reduce it. But what you don't realize is that the dog is receiving reinforcement from so many other aspects that you haven't even touched, that all you're doing is strengthening those behaviors and not actually reducing the punishment. And sometimes trainers don't even really know. They think they're withholding reinforcement, but they don't even know what all the other reinforcements are that the dog is getting access to. Yeah. So, so all you do is then have to increase the intensity of punishment. And if you are targeting that behavior for extinction, all you're doing is creating a stronger behavior in the meantime, because the dogs, I mean, we see it with dogs jumping when they get punished. They, or the person turns around and just ignores it. So the dog actively puts more and more intensity into that behavior, trying to access that same reinforcement. I mean, it's just it's just futile, isn't it? It's just unless you have drawn a line in the sand and you do not. And we see and we do see this and it it blows me away how professionals can work in our industry for a love of animals. But at the same time, and I'm not talking about the 80 percent, I'm talking about that percentage of people in our industry that are actually cruel, that the methods they are using have actually crossed over that that line into passive cruelty or active cruelty. Yeah. But but for the average dog trainer, just trying to use positive punishment in an environment outside a laboratory, it's just not gonna work without- yeah, there's, there's, there's always reinforcing maintaining the behavior and you would need to control all those reinforcers. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I, yeah which is often futile, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think as well, I mean, I, you know, when I look at both of my dogs, both of my dogs are so sensitive in their personality. I mean, I know friends that can jump up off a sofa, step on their dog's paw and the dog goes, huh? if I even trap a hair on my dog's paw with my shoe, yeah. that it is a complete meltdown. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think when we apply our training to dogs, I think we have to look at that lowest denominator yeah. to make sure that we're not this, I think, Yeah, I think this is what makes it so difficult. Uh, you're, you're, you're really pinpointing an important thing there is that what is aversive to one animal could mm -hmm. be completely neutral or non-aversive to another individual. Right. And if we know that in order to, to work mm -hmm. and uh, sort of permanently reduce unwanted behavior, mm -hmm punishment needs to be severe right. we end up with this ethical dilemma right because right. how severe how severe should it be mm -hmm. if if you have one of these sensitive animals it needs you know it could be really low and if we have the non-sensitive animal it needs to be really high because if it's not and also if it's if it only stops behaving momentarily we get this punishment callous that they <clears throat> Mm -hmm. They habituate to the aversive, which means right. that you need to escalate. Uh, yeah. And so so we get this vicious circle of abuse potentially mm -hmm. because the the punishment is 
low, the intensity is so low that it's not effective. And so you raise it until it becomes effective, but then the animal habituates and you yes. need to raise it again and the animal habituates. Yes. So it's like a uh, <laughs> potentially heading in the really the wrong direction, especially if you're interested in, in sort of having any type of good relationship with your animal. Yeah. I really think you shouldn't yeah. go there in the first place. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting you use the word ethical dilemma because for me, there is no dilemma. I mean, I, I, I have a very strong opinion about what, first of all, if I am training a dog and asking a dog to participate in an activity with me, that dog is going to enjoy it. I am not going to, in the same way that if we are going to put animals in captivity, we have a fundamental obligation to do everything we can to ensure they have an enriched environment. I, I truly believe that. And it's the same with our pet dogs. And for me, and I think James O'Hara said this really well in an article he wrote many years ago to do with Libby, is that you get to a point on the, on the chart where you say, can you install a behavior, a, 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 an alternative behavior, an incompatible behavior? And if you cannot, then you have to question yourself, is this even, is this even something you should be targeting? So the, the assumption is that if you cannot, through skill and competency, through the use of differential reinforcement, through antecedent control, through management, if you can't do all of that, then you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 guess, I guess that the, the ethical dilemma I'm referring to is when, you know, hypothetically, you have a problem behavior mm -hmm. that's important enough that it needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And you've gone through this hierarchy with the antecedent arrangement and the nutrition and the positive reinforcement and the replacement in the DRA, DRI, mm -hmm. you've tried negative punishment and you come to the point where you have to do it because nothing else worked and you've talked to every, you know, all the really good animal training friends that you have. Mm -hmm. which slims it down. I mean, yeah. that solves 999% yeah. of, every, but, but let's just say hypothetically, we have this case where we have, have to, then it's really an ethical dilemma because you need to apply an aversive stimulus. Mm -hmm. If it's too low, it will not be effective. And if, if it's too high, you just expose the animal to mm -hmm. um, unnecessary suffering. So this is for me the, the ethical dilemma, finding that balance point. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of a very theoretical, yeah, again, no, I'm not a practical that. trainer, so I can yeah, see that you yeah. say there's not a, it's not a dilemma for Right, and, I'm, let, me and let, me challenge, <laughs> let me challenge that thought because, yeah. I, I, and I'll be very honest, in full transparency, I'm not a fan of the hierarchy. Oh. No, I'm not, yeah. for a couple of reasons. One, because I think, I think you can have a best practice model God, you're going to get me on my platform now. This is going to be a four-hour conversation. Uh. <laughs> I, think, I think there is a best practice model available that allows for competency in terms of functionally assessing behavior. Well, first of all, asking the question, do you have the competency to even be taking this case? Yes or no? Yeah. If you do not, can you be supervised by somebody else? Yes or no? should this animal go straight to a veterinary behaviorist in terms of pharmacological intervention, yes or no? When you've then made the determination that it's a case that you can take, do, have you functionally analyzed exactly what is going on? Because often we see training scenarios where trainers jump into these training situations and they haven't even isolated problematic antecedents or what is currently reinforcing the behavior. So what they do or suggest because their hypothesis or their contingency statement is wrong. They go, they get on this elevator, I call it an elevator, and it's missing floors two, three, and four, and they push straight to floor five because there's a competency issue. So that's the first problem I have with it. Now you can argue, not you, we can argue that 80% of drug trainers are not going to do that, but there is a significant percentage that will do that. Yeah, sure. They may take a case that they don't have the skills or knowledge to do, and then they may not be able to identify it. And I think Dr. Karen Overall, she summed it up for me a few years ago and I had this same conversation with her sitting in a hotel, Ooh. Dr. Karen Overall. Okay. Yeah. yeah, because Karen said to me that she believes, and I, I hope I'm quoting her properly, that that 1% of cases that we're talking about, where we're talking about the ethical dilemma, 
that would be the equivalent of taking a child with autism or some mental disability and not having properly identified that, not applying medication and then saying, okay, now we're justified to use a severe aversive. Because if all of those other things have been done correctly, properly, with the right level of competency, with the right scenarios, should, if we haven't been able to rectify it by doing that, doesn't, then, doesn't that then speak to potentially a wiring problem, a, a neuroscience problem, a chemical imbalance problem? Whoa, big question. Yeah. I, I, I would include that in some of the lower level, uh, you know, treatment options. Absolutely. That's, you know, the, to me, the hierarchy is sort of a, it's, it's a help um because it it really mm -hmm. gives you uh, um like a systematic or a or, um, an approach to handling a problem behavior mm -hmm. where you might end up using punishment but very likely not because mm -hmm. all of these other resources will be here yeah and it's specifically stated that you should Mm -hmm. consult with others at you know at several points of that hierarchy but does, uh, does whereas i think that if you just say we shouldn't use punishment um I, i'm not sure that's always so helpful mm -hmm. no I, I i agree academically i agree i academically i agree but i think we're dealing with an industry where there are thousands of people practicing in it that yeah. don't have that academical background. No. And I, no, and I, I, I know that from... So you've, from got, you've got an academic, brilliant model, and then you've got the reality of the practitioners. Yeah. And, if, and if there isn't an ethical construct there that says, work within this hierarchy, but do not use pain, force, or fear, I'm fine with it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, and I think too often it's it's a it's an amazing discussion, Carolina, because I, there, I you know I mean obviously I have an ethical guideline that says that there's no, nothing that I will do in the strategic process of training or caring for an animal will be done intentionally to inflict pain, force, or fear because that's my ethical line in the sand. Yeah. Sure. Does that mean does that mean that I've ever done anything that of course because Sometimes we do things that we don't, we're not aware because of the sensitivity of an animal or the situation. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think there has to be an ethical construct that, and, and it's really funny, and this, is a great, this was a great conversation we had at one of our summits a couple of years ago where somebody said, and it was with Dr. Nathan Hall and um, Dr. Fernandez. And somebody, we were having a very similar conversation. It was a group of about 70 people. And somebody said, but um, we need to be ethical with science. And they said, science isn't ethical. Science is science. How you, how you then parallel that science with your code of ethics is a completely different topic. And there was like this silence in the room because nobody had ever really thought about that before. That science is an application of principles. That's, is that how you would describe science? It's sort of a, a set of oh, yeah. rules that you apply? There's, there's no sort of, uh, um, certainly not if you look at a lot of the research being done, that's really unethical and yeah. really violating right. we welfare issues. Yeah. So there's no, there's no sort of inherent ethical. Right, right ethics <laughs> yeah. in science absolutely right. not no yeah. Yeah. and and that's why for me we can say we are scientific trainers we we use applied behavior analysis for scientific but that doesn't speak to ethics the ethics is a separate conversation and it's about saying okay you're a scientific trainer but what are you, what what are your ethical guidelines where do you draw the line what will you do what will you not do because I can talk to a group of my peers and we, we're all a little bit different. All of us are a little bit different in terms of what we'll do, what we won't do. Some people will use a no reward marker, an uh-uh or a no, where other people will say, well, is that really providing information? Is it a 
you know, is it better just to use a positive interrupter or just to withhold reinforcement? So even at the lowest level, there are still those conversations and people not necessarily agreeing on approach, which is fascinating, isn't it? It really is. It's such a difficult. Absolutely. I had a mind shift or sort of one of these mind flips a couple of years ago. Um, I was listening to Eva Bertelsson, a fellow Swede friend of mine, yeah. uh, discussing non-reward markers particularly and, 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 and looking at the sort of the river of behavior. So mm -hmm. the animal's behaving. So here's behavior one, and here's the non-reward marker that we think of as a consequence of right. that behavior. Right. And so what she said that sort of just went, ugh, for me was that actually it's also an antecedent of whatever comes next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so being that the positive interrupter, but also like a start over signal that's saying, you know, come here or start over. <laughs> Let's try again. Uh, yeah. That sort of yeah. interrupts the ongoing whatever undesirable behaviors and sort of interrupts the faulty chain if that's yeah. going on. And yeah. so it allows the animal to start over, but it's not punishing at all because it's a cue Mm -hmm. that has been established with positive reinforcement. Yeah. And, and that, that's a really good point because I think too often when we have these sort of academic discussions about behavior, we, we, we tend to look at the ABC as an ABC. It's like a single unit, but it's not. It's an the ABC river. and the yeah. C becomes <laughs> A and it sort of goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Louise Knight, Sappleton Frappel and I were having this conversation a few weeks ago and we were talking about... Um, some behaviors where the actual consequence, the food, then becomes the antecedent to set up the next trial. And that's yeah. and that's why feeding placement reinforcement can be so important, you know, mm -hmm. that, that we don't just always pop it in a dog's available for a dog to take out of our hand. It might be dropped to set up the next ABC. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think, and, and I'm going to bring it back to the, the hierarchy and then we'll, we'll leave that topic alone. Um, I think that's why I struggle with the hierarchy because I think there are so many conversations that we can have on an academic level, but they don't all play out in practice. Yeah. And I and I think if we if we can argue or present that punishment might work in a laboratory, but it doesn't work in practice, I think you can apply that same thought to a theoretical hierarchy that it might work in conversation on paper, but the minute you put a thousand dog trainers into the equation, impractical, what what's happening with it? Just some food for thought. Yeah, and 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 that actually brings us back to to one other thing, which is the definition of punishment. Right. How do we define it? Does it does it have an effect on behavior? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. Skinner would say no. Right. Uh, according to him, punishment is all about you know, positive punishment would be adding something to the environment that has been proving to be a negative reinforcer, mm -hmm. and it doesn't say anything about whether that right uh, that unwanted behavior will diminish or not in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, but most modern trainers are using that definition that that yes, punishment uh, stops whatever behavior yeah. uh, was occurring at the time when it occurred. Jean Donaldson, Jean Donaldson does a fantastic webinar on um, negative reinforcement and positive punishment, and I think Jean um, shows it in a really good way because she looks at it on the continuum yeah. that for behavior to be negatively reinforced, it has to be an aversive in play because it has to be something that they're working to escape or avoid. Yeah. And, and that you can't look at one or the other without looking at them together. Yeah. In, in the same way with positive reinforcement and punishment, if you make reinforcement available to reinforce a behavior, when you remove that reinforcement, you also can be negatively punishing because you're removing something. And, and I think these are all really good discussions because again, we sometimes get into semantics about just looking at tiny pieces of the jigsaw puzzle when you can't do that, can you? You have to look at the whole picture. And also I think that um, the animal's emotional state will sort of tell you what's going on also, I think. And, that, and that's what it all, and for me, that's what it all needs to come down to. Yeah. Rather than having these kind of dogmatic discussions and arguments about ABA and quadrants, for me, it's very simple. Is the animal in front of me, are they really enjoying what's happening? Are they okay with it? Yeah. Because if they're not, we shouldn't be doing it. 
and that's completely oversimplified but in the in the in the oversimplification life of Nikki Tudge where every animal lives without pay without the fear of being mistreated or malnutritioned or then that for me is how I look at it and again yeah. it's a massive oversimplification but is no, the I'm, okay with I'm, it? I'm the queen of simplifications I, I love it yeah Mm -hmm. I'm using I'm using the mantra fun for everyone in in the first sort of introductory uh, module of my basic training right. course uh, to sort of really cement that that the important thing is really maybe not the the goal mm -hmm. but the journey that that the training session is actually mm -hmm. enjoyable right for both both you as a trainer and yeah. And the animal and whatever teacher might be sort of supervising <laughs> yeah yeah on on your website you talk about effective neuroscience and how that's such an important part of that jigsaw puzzle with ethology and aba what do you think that really brings into that sort of collection of the sciences and, and how that's helped you in terms of your teachings well i think one way that it really helped me is so I've been talking about I've been teaching about uh, applied ethology for mm -hmm. like twenty years, right? And and I worked with applied ethology uh, practically also, sort of. So so I had and again, sort of simplifying the you know if if I was to tell you in two minutes the important things about applied ethology, it would be that the animal has a good social environment mm -hmm. that. Um, they have a time budget that sort of equals what the, the wild counterpart of the animal would be doing all day with a special focus on feeding. Oh, so you're talking um, about in captivity? In yeah, animals in yeah. captivity. Well, yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> our pets could be considered yeah. animals in right. captivity yeah. that we, we, yeah. we provide them with the environment. Yeah, and so an adequate social environment, an adequate time budget with special focus on, on I love feeding. That. Right. And the third thing would be um, adequate coping mechanisms when they're fearful. Okay. They will be fearful. Things will happen. And so they should be able to do whatever species-specific adequate behavior would be. If it's, right. you know, it's a monkey, they will jump up. If it's a rabbit, they will burrow. Yeah. If it's a zebra, they will run. So right. you need to provide space and opportunities to carry out those anti-predatory behaviors. Yeah. So I've been teaching that about that for years as the sort of three important cornerstones in applied ecology. Yeah. 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 Very simple. And then I stumbled across, I was actually reading um, Temple Grandin, mm -hmm. uh, one of her books where she describes Jak Panksepp's uh, concept of the seven core emotions, which is right. what he's studied. And those seven core emotions just slid perfectly into my pre this pre-existing framework mm -hmm. because the social aspect that I've been talking about is, is you know, the, the care right. system, mm -hmm. the lust system, yeah. uh, grief uh, plays into that. And the what do animals do all day is <laughs> the yeah. seeking system yeah. and yeah. perhaps play. And the what do animals do when they're afraid is the fear and rage <coughs> have I forgotten one? Maybe. Okay, well anyway, so so I thought that really um to me it was sort of um another piece of the puzzle that helped me explain and also from the sort of evolutionary perspective why these seven core emotions are so important because right. they're all about survival. And I think that what <coughs> <coughs> What affective neuroscience brings to the table that I think maybe ABA uh, doesn't, as, mm -hmm. as far as I, and again, I'm not a behavior analyst myself, so I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that some behavior analysts will cringe when they hear me describe this. But from my understanding of behavior analysis, they tend to look at you tend to look, you know, close in time to whatever behavior you're interested in, and you're looking at the antecedents for that behavior you know, in like seconds or minutes or hours yeah. uh, or maybe days that predict what the animal is going to do given a certain context. Uh, and yes, you do pay attention to emotions. And I think that, you know, some some people would deny that, 
behavior analysts look at emotions, but that's in my understanding they do. Yeah. part of the M, the, the motivating operations. Well, and, and exactly. I mean, I was just, I was just going to say that because the motivating operations impact the, the, the reinforcer and fear. Yeah, and yeah. Emotions yeah, yeah. Oh, ab yeah. Absolutely. So I don't yeah. think that, any, you know, yeah. most people oh, well, would actually, deny that. But let me just stop your thought because yeah. I, I think you're talking about, again, an academic level because I think there's a, I would be, and this would be a really interesting poll to do on this um, Facebook live session as to how many people don't even really know what motivating operations are or, yeah. setting, or setting events. They're just looking yeah. at a direct, what the direct stimulus. They're not looking yeah. at the so, so Anyway, so, so if we're looking at behavior analysis, we're looking at the, the emotional behavior of the animal yeah. in the situation. Yeah. The yeah. fearful dog who barks. Yeah. 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 So what I think that that uh, affective uh, behavior, uh, um, affective neuroscience can bring to the table is more of a sort of umbrella view on personality and temperament and how the mechanisms that bring about personality <clears throat> development right. which has a lot to do with uh, emotional experiences when you're really young mm -hmm. so during the juvenile period yeah. The type of experiences that you are exposed to then will pave the way for the type of personality that you develop. Right. And how you will respond, whether you will bark at other dogs. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 So, so in this context, the situation right here is sort of, and yeah, so that's yeah. sort of the, the perspective that I see right. that affective neuroscience is really useful is that is the sort of how do personalities develop? We know, right. for instance, that care behavior from the mother, mm -hmm. whether the mother <clears throat> shows competency in taking care of her offspring or the type of competency that she shows, the types of behavior that she shows yeah. has a huge impact on how those babies turn out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely huge. And I think, and it's sort of mind boggling yeah right about yeah yeah it, it can really be the difference between a confident explorative individual mm -hmm. and somebody who barks at shadows and hides under a chair yeah is the the mothering behavior right right because of epigenetics yeah oh that's a fun then we have yeah that's and then a, we, we have all the genes you know oh, the the whatever so it just increases the variability. It doesn't. It doesn't determine how animals turn out, right? Right, because it depends on the gen, yeah. the yeah. genetic uh, makeup in yeah. the first place. But those genes can be turned on and off depending on uh, all kinds of uh, stimuli and experiences that the animal is exposed to as a. Yeah, both it's, in the womb and early on. I, I gotta tell you, when I joined our industry, I, I started off as sort of a hobby dog trainer in 2001. I was living in Hawaii and I was doing agility with my own dog and just became absolutely obsessed with applied behavior analysis. Um, I, I, when you look back over the last 20 years, our industry has moved so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, just it's amazing, and it's just and it seems to be accelerating. The fact that dog trainers are talking about epigenetics and effective neuroscience and um, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, you couldn't get anybody sort of even to talk about quadrants or it was it was just it was more a sort of rote mechanical. This is what you do to get this behavior. But the, yeah. I, from my perspective, that was how I was sort of introduced into the industry. Yeah. So it's 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 absolutely fascinating. And, you know, going back earlier, you were talking about how you're not a good dog trainer. You don't perceive yourself as being a good dog trainer. I mean, I perceive myself as being an OK dog trainer. I've got colleagues like Louise Appleton Rappel who make me look like a kid. I mean, they're mechanics. They're just because that's what they truly, passionately love to do. Yeah. I'm a bit of an. I'm a bit of. I'm a bit of sort of a book geek. I mean, I just love to learn. Um, I just love to learn all this stuff and then sort of try to attempt to regurgitate it so that other people understand it. Yeah. yeah. Which is which is the course that you do that you bring up that only has enrollment once a year. Oh, it's two out of my three courses that only have enrollment okay. once a year. Yeah. All right. So there's three uh, courses. Talk to me about yeah. those three courses. Well, I have I, I started out when I first told my told my husband, honey, I want to start selling online courses. And he was mm -hmm. like, Yeah, good luck, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and he was 
he wasn't condescending, but he told me yeah. up front that he really didn't believe that, you know, because he doesn't buy online courses. Right. So he yeah. couldn't figure that anybody would ever yeah. be interested yeah. in that. And so I figured out I'd start, you know, doing some blogging because that's what you're supposed to be doing. And then I, 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 I took some sort of online marketing courses because mm -hmm. uh, I also love learning, and 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 that was a huge learning curve right. for me since I'm a biologist by training. Yeah. And anyway, and, and so somebody suggested that you should do a webinar. So I, <clears throat> I put out an ad, sort of say, or I, you know, I. I announced to the world that I was going to do a free webinar on emotions. And within like a week, I had, I think, 300. Um, a small number. Of a small yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I realized, but maybe, maybe I should make a course and try to sell it to them. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. So I. So yeah, so I did that, and I had like twenty-five people sign up to it, and I and I was very clear with them. I said that listen, there isn't a, I I haven't made the course. We're gonna I'm gonna do it and deliver it over the next couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah. And um, so that was the start of that. It was sort of just an impulse that uh, maybe I should do a course about online. Oh, how long ago? That? How long that was in 2016. Okay. Yeah. And so and at the time I was working at the. At one of the universities in Sweden, I was working half time and I was trying to fix a course. The other fifty percent, and it was just crazy. I had to work like nights and evenings and weekends, and and just sort of uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, rush to finish each module because I delivered a module per week, right, for this course. And I was blown away by the response because like right. it, people were saying, "My God, we have the, we." We haven't heard any of this before, so I realized that this was not common, common knowledge. Common yeah. knowledge, and yeah. that's also interesting because you have this—the um, curse of knowledge—that you don't know what you what you know, right? And you don't know the value of it either. And yeah, you don't know the value of it. You don't yeah. know what other people would appreciate, yeah, knowing about. So yeah. I—that was really a surprise to me because I had no idea that a course about animal emotions could be so yeah. uh, beneficial. Value. Value and value. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I started out doing that, and then what, I, I typically open that for. What's uh, it called? Every, it's called animal emotions. Okay. All right. Animal emotions. Okay. Yeah, and I do that every uh, uh, every autumn, like September, October. Yeah. I open it, mm -hmm. and to, also one of the things that I do with my courses is, uh, I I when I launch them, so I open them for I open access to them. I typically do like a free um, video series yeah. where I give a, I, I, I give away some of the best content of the you course. Suck, you suck people in. They want yeah. to know more. Yeah. And yeah. I tend to be really generous yeah. in these courses because yeah. I really want to provide a lot of free information. Yeah. And if people then want to go deeper and learn more, they can then right. buy the full course. Right. Okay. All right. So one of the courses is called Animal Emotions. What yeah. The, what are the other two courses? Uh, the other the other course is called Getting Behavior. Okay. Which is like a uh, it's like a word play because it's both getting as in understanding, mm -hmm. and it's also getting as in producing, as right. in the animal doing the yeah. behavior that yeah. you want. Uh, yeah. And that's that's actually open for access all year round. Okay. All yeah. right. And then the third um, one. And the third one is called advanced animal training. Okay. Which is the, the the only one so far that has some prerequisites. Not formal. You don't have to show me anything, but yeah. it's, really, it's for the the people who have a at least a theoretical basic understanding of yeah. of the quadrants. Right. <laughs> what, yeah. what is positive reinforcement all about? Yeah. Yeah. And understanding perhaps also what is negative reinforcement, negative, you know, all these, yeah. uh, because it's really, that is really dense and extremely nerdy. <laughs> oh, maybe that's the one I should do. Yeah. I like, <laughs> I like the idea of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So all, and all of these are available on your website, which I'm hoping it will, I know somebody will post the link to those in the Facebook feed. So yeah. Great. Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And also, so, um, so the advanced course and the animal emotions course, I, when I open them, I typically email my my list, um, and yeah. I, I tend to be more active on Facebook and so on. Yeah. 
Facebook has been my main sort of um, my advertising board to the world right. about what I'm doing. Right. Your your blogs are. I mean, I, I I have to admit, your your blogs are always really nicely, and um, they're always written in a very um, informal. I mean, when I when I got one of your emails a few months ago, when I first signed up for your course, I thought, oh, how lovely! She sent me this lovely email, and then as I read down it, I thought, this isn't just gone to me; it's gone to lots of people. <laughs> Food, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's yeah. what we, that's how we should read because that was why I read it because I went, oh, Carolina sent me an email. Oh, no, 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 no. oh, this is oh, this is really oh, this has gone to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, <clears throat> I even though I am an academic, I'm you know my 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 formal title title is an associate professor of ethology, right. but I I um. I don't know if it's a sort of cultural thing too that we in Sweden we we it's not a very hierarchical society. Hmm. I know in some countries people would address you, you know, they would say professor such and yeah. such. You, yeah. you would never do that in Sweden. Mm -hmm. I think you said Dr. Westland when we started having yeah. this conversation. And I feel a bit uncomfortable with that. No, and and, yeah. and I, the very first time I spoke to you, I asked you how what would you like me to call you? Um look, I came from a background where I was hosting, I mean, just to sing my own song. I mean, I, I used to host royalty because I was always a general manager of very of the best hotel in any city I worked in. So wow. So by default, I mean, I was talking to some friends. I mean, I've hosted and had dinner with Nelson Mandela and several U.S. presidents and all kinds of, you know, famous people because that was part of my job. So I was always very sensitive as to what you call people. And I have found that most people say, oh, just call me whatever. Um, but an, an academics, I mean, I'm always very respectful of academic titles because there are a lot of work to get. So, <laughs> but it is, but, but you're absolutely right. It is cultural, isn't it? Because in some oh, yeah. countries, you would absolutely, I mean, um, my husband used to work for the State Department and through his job, I always met ambassadors and people like that. And you always, the ambassador Joseph, who was our last ambassador, we knew them socially and we called, I called he and his wife by their first name, but in public, it would always be Ambassador Joseph. You would never not use that title. So I'm, I'm always very um, careful because it can offend people if you don't. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it really can. Just as I feel a bit uncomfortable hearing the doctor thing or yeah. the professor thing, yeah. Uh, yeah. some people can really get affronted if they yeah. don't hear it. <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So I, absolutely a cultural, a cultural thing, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and in the past, I've asked some people, um, you know, what should I call you? Well, I mean... Many years ago, we owned an animal hospital and a pet resort in um, Mississippi. And the veterinarian that um, leased it from us was wouldn't she would not answer you if you didn't call her Doctor So and So. Oh, yeah. So she'd just ignore you. Or yes, yes, oh. yeah. It was that important to her that she be called Doctor so and so mm -hmm. and and I always remembered that because I always thought you know I mean I, I personally I thought that was a little bit silly but it's your name your title how would you like me to address you I, I'll I'll respect that yeah absolutely yeah it's interesting yeah oh academics academic I, I'm, my, my, my brother's a doctor he's an academic and I don't I mean honestly until I even think about it I don't even think about the fact that he's a doctor because I don't think anyone's ever called him Dr. Tudge um <laughs> I don't think he'd answer if somebody didn't, to be honest with you. I think he'd probably continue walking, not realizing they were referring to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, if, if people call me Dr. Westland, I, I, it just slips by. I, I won't even pay attention to it. I, isn't, it isn't it different? And maybe um, where you are, doesn't, isn't it different? Because obviously I haven't been in the hotel industry for years, so I'm not used to um, whining and dining with the, the rich and the famous anymore. Isn't, isn't it... Um, don't academics that are not medical doctors don't don't you think that they are um have different preferences in how they are referred to whereas medical doctors it's always doctor whereas with academics it could be professor or doctor or just first name term or is it the same way you are does it not seem to matter i i would say it's really 
variable. Right. And more perhaps of a cultural my rather limited experience but from what i see for instance in germany mm -hmm. uh they're a lot more strict with with making sure that all the titles are mentioned yeah and they you know when when you introduce or even talk to somebody in right. a casual conversation that you always you know insert the yeah the honorific so mm -hmm. so even at university if you were lecturing your students would call you carolina oh yeah yeah I'm not sure how that would play. I'm not sure about American universities. I've never been into one. I'm not sure how that would play out here. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I yeah. love I, I love the diversity. I really do. I think it makes the world a really interesting place. That yeah, we're not we're not all the same. But it's it's good to it's good to remember though because you don't want to inadvertently offend right. somebody by by yeah. Yeah. by not using it. Yeah, and 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 this is a, a massive assumption on my part, and I could be completely off base here, but I would think that it might be more offensive to not refer to someone with with their title than to refer to them and then and they not want it used. Oh yeah, yeah. Would you, would you agree? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's easier to say just call me Carolina than to say no, no, no. I'm doctor. I'm sure it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. to anybody watching, um, please do go to um, Dr. Westland's website, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to give you the um, the URL. So it's Illis ABC, but the URL is i double l i s dot s e backslash e n. Is that yeah. correct, or is it just? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, it's I, I love going to it. It's a very happy place to be. Um, happy animals who thrive with people. I think that says it all, doesn't it? Absolutely says it all. You, you're you're such a good fun person to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I was I yeah. was hoping I'd get to meet your one of your teenagers, but they obviously. Uh, I had one just sneaking in here and saying, you know, very silent hello, yeah. and he snuck off. So I didn't he. He's at that age when he really doesn't want to. No, I don't blame be, him. Be shown. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And again, I'm just going to make an announcement that um, Carolina will be joining us for our virtual summit in November. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and next week, we're going to put out a lot more information about that because if we don't do it soon, I'm going to end up telling people what I shouldn't be telling people before it's officially announced. Uh, you said November now. Did you really yeah. mean It's November. Is that a slip of the tongue or? Uh, I don't know. You see, this is why I. I yeah. this is why you really I, need to announce it. Yeah, the, mm. sometimes the steering committee don't like it when I do things like this because I end up dribbling stuff out. I I, I, <laughs> I have a problem keeping my mouth shut. But I get really excited about things. So, I, and I always want to share it with other people. So anyway, thank you for coming on. Thank you for all the great work you're doing. I know, and I, I I'm going to get motivated. I just made some notes actually about your um, what did you say it was called um. The time time budget time budget was that what you referenced? Yeah. The time, the time budget when you, when we were talking about the three sort of cornerstones of um, animal yeah. welfare. Which course do you talk about that, or do you talk about it in all three? Is there one in particular? Uh, well, I think I probably mention it in all my courses, but it's not the main focus of any of them. Right. Because I've, I have yet to do a course on applied. Ethology. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you know, you know what would be fascinating? And we have a lot of our members are very passionate about rescue and shelter. I mean, and as as you know, we launched our pet rescue resource recently. Yeah. I'm sure there's some great tie-ins there in terms of um the rescue world, rescue and shelter. Oh, yeah. 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 And you know, in the context of sort of captive animals, so to speak. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. You're and welcome. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye. Bye. Canine Arthritis Management is a vet-led education service for owners and pet professionals. Osteoarthritis has been reclassified a welfare concern and acknowledged as a leading cause of premature elective euthanasia. It's a complex and common disease that is often overlooked as simply aging or slowing down. It frequently underlies unwanted behaviours and results in a poor quality of life for dog and owner.
Cam believes that education is the key to changing this. And if you support Cam by sharing posts or redirecting your clients to their evidence-based online resources, you can help Cam achieve their goals. As PPG members, you have a special discount code that will get you 10% off all their shop products. Visit your PPG member area to access this code. You can also visit www.caninearthritis.co.uk to learn more about the organisation and how you can support them. Thank you for listening. That's us for the day. To learn more about the Pet Professional Guild, visit www.petprofessionalguild.com. And remember, have fun training.